You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the season finale, Spine Number 12, 1975's The Astrologer. As Nick Reffin would put it, this movie takes autorism to an entirely new level. Cody. Yes, sir. You're not an astrologer. You're an asshole. Craig Marcus Alexander. I was born to lie, cheat, and steal. I steal hundreds of thousands of dollars, only I do it legally. The left hand shows that you had a romance that just ended. Very close. World famous sidereal astrologer, Craig Marcus Alexander, the astrologer. Do you really know your true sun sign? What about the horoscopes for the public? The books aren't selling. Nothing is happening. You're falling, baby, right down into the muck. Everything that you see, everything that you do, everything that you are is because of me. Bullshit! You've got nothing left. Now, we're going to get down to business. 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 When you hear the sound of the drums, you're as good as What now? More shit. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always are Cody Bouchard. Yes, sir. And Martin Carlson. Hello, hello. So, guys, this is it. The season finale. We made it. How do you feel? I feel good. I really, I think, got a really nice run of films here, and um, this is a excited to talk about this one. I think it's a great cap to the season. Um, yeah. So, should we just get into it? Because tonight, I feel like tonight's movie could warrant like, I don't know, nine hours of conversation. Just Easily, to, yeah, because it's so bizarre. We are talking about 1975's The Astrologer. So, guys, Cody, I know that this was not your first time because... It's I my, sh- my second time, and both times have been with you. So, this is technically a secret handshake film uh, for the two of us. Uh, not just, you know, not for you exactly, but for me and you, yes. Right. Uh, yeah, we. I first saw it with you uh, when you were running a video store here in town, and you uh, arranged uh, an evening once a week called Taps and Tapes where you set up a screen outside and a whole bunch of chairs and people came down and drank beers and watched awesome flicks. And uh, you were one of the lucky few on the planet to be able to acquire a copy of this thing. We put it on one night and it blew my fucking mind. (laughs) Yeah, that that screening series, it was weird. It it started out so modestly, but like that night people were pulling in in like truck beds and shit to watch this movie. Like we had a ton of people show up because... That's the thing that we should talk about first is that you cannot see the astrologer. You cannot see it. It's impossible to see uh, outside of rep screenings, which obviously don't exist anymore. Thank you to coronavirus. But there's no home video release. There's no VHS release. There's no DVD release. There's no Blu-ray release. This movie, 
you know, it did play in LA initially in the mid seventies after you know, it was made and Craig Denny put it out into the world. Well, really unleashed it upon the world is probably the better way to put it. There's talk that there was like an Australian broadcast TV airing of it one time, but like outside of that, you know, this movie just, it's impossible to see. It is a true secret handshake movie, which brings me to Martin. How was it to watch this for the first time? Man. Um, I had heard about it for years. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask next is like, were you aware of the movie's reputation? I knew that you like, you obviously knew me who like ranted and raved about this thing all the time, but well, I, I had heard about it actually from, um, from Mike Vanderbilt in Chicago and, um, they had shown it up there at a small, a small screening to friends, I think, but he had kind of taken upon himself. Like, I think it was one of those films people kind of take ownership of, like, I'm going to, yes. like, it is a film you have to like, re- because you have to find a copy, which again is not easy and then introduce it to people. So he actually gave me a, I have the button somewhere. It says, you're not an astrologer, you're an asshole. I have a button that he made, but I was like, what the fuck is that? I still hadn't seen the movie. And then, so there was a lot of buildup for me and it was more than I honestly could have hoped for. It's really rare where, especially with a cult film, I don't also, also, I didn't realize why it was so great and why <laughs> it was so weird. Like I, yeah, it's, it, it's impossible to, we're going to do our best tonight to describe it to the folks at home who obviously haven't seen it, but it's one of those movies that like you I don't even know if you watch it per se. You more or less like experience it and let it wash over you because trying to describe it to people, it's almost like a, a futile endeavor. There's, I mean, you guys said after we watched it, like how many times I just turned you both like, what? Like, just like I did triple takes like yeah. over and over again watching this movie. And within so, the first five minutes, <laughs> like it, I, it's so, there are moments that are so wonderfully inept that end up becoming something else you know, through that, um, they're like, wow, this is actually something beyond is, you know, sometimes films get written off as a bad film, you know, poorly made. It's like, you know, the logic. Right. But I don't think that's this, you know, I was really kind of amazed by a lot that was going on. Yeah. This Um, is one of the true works of accidental genius. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like I saw it for the first time at fantastic fest. I think it was 2016, I believe because as the story goes, this movie was rediscovered by AGFA, the American American Genre Film Archive. And they apparently got like a shipment of porno, frankly, that they found a print that was labeled The Astrologer, 1975, in it. And they even apparently initially wrote it off as like, oh, this is the James Glickenhaus movie, The Astrologer, which for those who aren't aware, James Glickenhaus, who is mostly known for making like The Executioner and Soldier and um, quite a few movies, McBain with Christopher Walken. Uh, he was a great NYC action exploitation director who in 1975, he made a movie called The Astrologer, which is... Severin just put it out and it's another kind of inexplicable movie to where it, it it's all about uh, numerology and like the 
possible resurrection of Christ, but it's done in like this 77 minute, like totally psychotic exploitation film that would honestly make for a great uh, standalone episode uh, on its own. But like, apparently Nick Reffin of all people was who is he sits on the board of uh, Agfa was going through this and saw the astrologer and was like, Ooh, I'd love to revisit James Glickenhouse's movies. So they like queued it up to watch and uh, immediately in the first reel were like, this is not what the fuck is this? Like nobody knows like what was happening to them. And then they, so they took it upon themselves to essentially restore it and then show it at uh, Fantastic Fest that year. I was there and, that year. That's why I also heard of it then. Yeah. I was there. I just didn't go. So I was like, I want to see something new. I wasn't, I didn't know what it was. I was in that first Fantastic Fest audience when Nick Reffin uh, presented it. And he said in his intro, he was like, this movie literally takes autism to an entirely new level because it's made by a guy named Craig Denny who wrote, directed, well, quote unquote, co-wrote with Dorothy Pigeon, uh, the screenplay, but co-wrote, directed, produced, starred in The Astrologer in a movie that's essentially autobiographical. It's about a con man named Craig who becomes a multimillionaire through astrology, like setting up his own astrology company and then invests that in an autobiographical film called The Astrologer that he writes, directs, produces, and co-stars in. It's Ouroboros. It's like adaptation. It's like eating itself. Yeah, right? it's like, it, you just watch it and like... It's out of its mind. Yeah, you, you, it, you, there's the moment where he watches the film within the film called The Astrologer, and that's the moment where time like collapses onto itself. Because it's, you're not, just it's like, not breaking the fourth wall. It's like creating a sixth wall. Yeah, it's from it's a transmission from another dimension is what it feels like. But that screening, I've never, I, I don't hesitate in saying that 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 was the greatest theatrical experience of my life because I've never heard a crowd react to a movie the way that they did. Like it was just an explosion. And it wasn't people laughing at the movie. It was the same. It was a collective like 350 or however many like that auditorium could hold of folks just doing what you just described to where it was like, what the fuck am I even watching at this point? Because it's totally bananas insane. It's, um, I've never, I mean, I've, we'll get into obviously double features later. I've seen films of this vein you know, where they're very, it's, it's strange. Like it's a, yeah, a Thor, I can't think it's a strange movie and it gives you a really weird vibe when you're watching it. Like it's kind of creepy at times. Sure. You know, it has a really weird feel it, to it. It seems a little sinister. Yeah. There's, there's some energy there and it, it, you know, thinking like watching that film, I've read so many, like, I think movies like cigarette burns or the book night film, where there's like a lost film. that's like cursed. Like this seems like that film was like lost to time that when you find it, like makes you go insane. Like again, that moment where he's watching himself on the screen, you know, like in the mouth of madness style. 
Yeah. But less planned out and more like, whoa, I don't even know if you know what you're doing right now, but it's really great. Well, and there's a heavy dose of psychedelia that's kind of layered onto the movie that makes it even more, let's say, otherworldly because there are whole sections of it that play out almost like music video, which we'll get into too here in a minute, set to moody blues songs and stuff that clearly when you watch this, because this movie was not made for much money at all, but like he didn't have the rights to these songs, but he just did it. I read somewhere earlier today. It was supposedly made for $4 million in 1970, whatever money. Yeah. With the travel, that makes sense. Yeah. Too, right? Because, and that's the other thing is that it is a globe hopping adventure that he, like, again, all of this is apocryphal. Like, we cannot verify any of it because nobody knows where Craig Denny is. He might be dead. He might have disappeared to essentially escape creditors. Uh, and, f- like, there is a theory out there that Craig Denny faked his own death and might still be alive. I mean, at this point... His his friend, the... Um, Arthur Chadwick? Yeah, the manager of the real-life astrologer. He he is said on record that he thinks that he that or he didn't say that he thinks that but he said that denny had talked before he died had talked about wanting to fake his death to get away from like fbi and irs yeah and then he went to call him at his house like a few days later and uh, denny's sister answered the door and just very like deadpan like oh he died yeah nobody <laughs> knows how it. he died right that's he, the thing he'd be like 80 now right well, that's what i mean he's probably like even if he had done that he died under whatever pseudonym that he gave himself afterwards because you know he's 80 but like we should explain a little bit on who craig denny was so craig denny was a guy who was essentially a con man in real life he started his own astrology company i believe it was called moon house and what they did is they created these computer printouts essentially for like low rent uh, actors and celebrities and like Hollywood, but also businesses to where businesses would essentially make big like financial moves based on like these astrological readings that Craig Denny had manufactured through this computer, but he made millions of dollars doing it. So he was essentially like, okay, well I'm going to take these millions of dollars and I'm going to make a movie Which, uh, there's some information out there that originally the astrologer was possibly supposed to be a TV show, which results in how episodic the movie feels at times because it does like jump around and like one minute it's like an Indiana Jones adventure. The next minute it's this weird character drama the minute after that, it's like a Citizen Kane, like rise and fall picture. It's totally bizarre. But he took the, the, the money, invested it in this movie. And then the whole idea was that while he was making the movie, he didn't, he was basically taking the money that he was making and using it to pay off back debts and then borrowing more money to pay those debts as well, which is what resulted in the idea that he was trying to dodge creditors and the FBI and tax evasion and shit, right. because like he just had 
threads of like almost Ponzi scheme level like amounts of cash coming in because and that he had no way to both account for and pay back. So what you're watching when you watch the astrologer is kind of a guy confessing to you in a weird way about his own crimes on screen because the literal like opening narration is you have that helicopter shot that comes in and it's zooming down and we meet Craig in the movie he plays Craig Marcus Alexander okay which I mean let's face it there is some weird like Citizen Kane comparisons there because you have like what Charles Foster Kane like even phonetically it sort of sounds like when you put the the names together but like we meet him as he's basically a a, a traveling fortune teller with a carnival you see him as a kid first. And he's a kid. Oh, that's right. Because yeah, he's like stealing. kid. Yeah, he's stealing from a, a woman's purse. And he's he's confessing to us. He's like, look at me. I'm stealing. And that's what I would do my entire life. I basically invented a way to make money. It was stealing. Legalized stealing. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. But okay, keep going. But he is totally upfront about the fact that he's not, what he's doing is illegitimate. He's a con man. He's not like a person to be trusted whatsoever. And then this, let's say truth meets fiction air that the entire movie owns is only further complicated by the fact that the entire movie is portrayed by both not only Craig Denny, but friends of his who were non-actors who are all playing roles that have their own first names. Like when you watch it, like the, the, the performers are playing themselves almost. And it's like, it's like a Chloe Zhao film. It's like the writer. Yeah. But like, you know, basically, you know, docudrama. Yeah. It's weird too, though. Like when you think about the confession side of it, because there's, the, there's the sequence, there's a, a quite a few, t- a bit of time in the film where he's um, working at the U S government, like helping them plot out like, Navy, yeah, that's the, later the, in the movie with yeah. the Navy. Right. And at that point, when they should launch their mission, well, isn't it the Department of Defense? I believe it was. Yeah, he was, but he was doing. He was basically, hey, you need to. Either way, he's consulting with the U.S. military, which is bananas. And but at that point, you almost forget. It feels like it's real, like that he's saying because there's no issue in in the story of the film that he's lying to the government. You know, like that's not the problem, right? So it's it's a sense of like, no, this is a real power that I have. And it just kind of becomes matter of fact. But it, I, I also wonder, here's the only part, I, I don't necessarily take issue with that reading of it, but I wonder if it's more that he's taken pride in the fact that he's tricked the U.S. government into trusting him to a degree. Because like, again, the back half of the movie becomes essentially a movie about failure about how he pisses it all away and is too stupid to listen to anybody talk, like especially Arthur who's breathing down his neck is like kind of like his manager by the end or his like business manager and is saying like hey man like we need to bring more streams of revenue in because we have all these bills that we need to fucking pay and he's like ah that's no, fine just but he literally says at one point just borrow more money to use it to pay it back which again is a confession to what he was doing in real life. Yeah, and we were saying in Chile, it could be like an accidental, you know, masterpiece where 
I don't know if again, this is all like you said, anecdotal too. I don't know um, yeah what this guy was thinking making this film, but it seems like he's making it's like this. He's making his Citizen Kane. Like he's making oh, 100%. This, you know, the fact, you know, that it's very similar because he's like, that's what a great film is. I'm going to do that. But about my life, but not even realizing he's confessing, you know, it's like, cause it's things he knows about. Like he's, sure. writing, he's writing what he knows. He does the first good thing you should do as a writer. And then, but it's like, well, this is really close to like too close to what you were dealing with. Yeah. Because then you have, so we had, I guess again, for the many of you who have never seen this movie, so we have the carnival, you know, he's doing these readings. There's even that great exchange kind of early on with Arthur and a potential, let's say, victim. He's got a, a shiny star spangled scarf tied on his head to make him look all the more mystical. Yeah, exactly. And he's also doing this out of like a very small teardrop, teardrop trailer that's just like custom painted with all the different astrological symbols on it. Yeah, and even the manager of the carnival comes to him at one point and is like, motherfucker, I need the rent. And when he can't come up with it, he starts busting his windows well, out of his he, car. Because he says to the manager, like, I don't have it. I just bought this car. I'm going to get the rest of you. He's like, oh, you're going to give me the rest. And then he, what does he get? He gets like an axe or a it's bat like a or something. a sledgehammer, I think. Yeah, yeah he, a sledgehammer appears. Well, it's a carnival. Um, and he just beats the hell out of the car. Every single panel busts out all the windows. And then Craig just seems... Hardly. nonchalant yeah he's like oh well, that's right. kind of the crazy i'm glad that you brought up the nonchalant part because it's like that's almost his defining character trait to where he's just like almost shrugging his way through the movie like oh right aren't i a fucking pain in the ass that raises a question in my mind is is he is he just affectless is he an affectless bad actor or is he like on the spectrum wow i never thought about on the spectrum i think he's not a great actor, but I think it's also supposed to be, I don't think it's on the spectrum. I think it's one of those things of like, he thinks this casualness or like this lack of, let's say consequence. He's going for like a Redford feel. Yeah. Like he's trying to like do his Redford. That, yeah. That, he's, that little smirk too. That shit eating granny has the yeah. whole movie. It's he's, like if you cross like Robert Redford with like Eddie Haskell to where he's just like kind of winking at you like, ah, I, I got caught again. And you're like, okay, this is fucking weird, but maybe he's just so spiritual. He's free of the bonds of humanity. I also think that again, this is such a work of extreme hubris the entire time that like, he's a guy who probably since he's playing himself, didn't think that any of this would have any consequences. It's almost that I know I don't like tying these things back to like modern events or whatever, but like when I watched this with you guys this time, I was thinking about Donald Trump a little bit to where it was just kind of like what those people who exist in the world who simply think that they're above any sort of repercussion. Yeah. You know, and that's how he carries himself the entire time. Now he's not a seething bully like Trump. He's more again, just kind of like this, ah, aren't I a stinker, man? Like, I'm sorry. I swindled millions of money from you. Like, I feel like he is a bully to the people that are closest to him when they don't go along with what he wants. Yeah, no, that's true. He's, he sells a woman for a boat later on. Oh my God. And she's fine (laughs) with it. It's okay. Her husband, her husband died minutes later. Yeah, by earlier, getting rather. Well, let's get to that part of the, the movie then, because it's like, so we're in the carnival. 
his car gets busted up. He's essentially going to get thrown off of it. And Arthur comes to him and is like, hey, man, I'm crewing up with this this fucking ship to go overseas. Uh, you should come with me because we should get the fuck out of here. And Craig at first is like, no, I, you know, I met this woman because he reads the signs of Darian who becomes his uh, love interest on and off throughout the well, movie, which is I'm another weird her. thing. At that moment, he says, I'm going to marry her. Yeah, he literally, right. he has Arthur give her, her money back because he's like, yeah, return that money to that, that woman because she's going to be my wife. And he's like, you're going to marry her now? He's like, no, 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 eventually. And you're like, okay, Craig, whatever. But like, so he crews up with this, sh- this ship to essentially get out of town because he has all these debts that are already accruing. And smash cut to Kenya. This is also three and a half minutes into the movie. Yes. Yeah. It's. I thought he met the couple in America. He didn't crew up with him. He met that couple and goes with them. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. That's that's right. right. He meets the couple who wants to do diamond smuggling. They they wine and dine him in a cemetery. Cemetery. And that's why he crews up with Arthur because it's like, well, how am I going to get overseas? I think. And then he gets overseas, and then again, smash cut. Kenya. And these are the parts where we were talking about how it's shot on location, quote unquote, apparently, is that like all of a sudden he's in a fucking Kenyan prison in like one of the greatest visual. Like this movie has great visual gags, whether it knows it does or not. But like all of a sudden we're in a Kenyan prison. We have this warden who's like, all right. I just want to throw in uh, when we smash cut to him in the prison. It's not his first time. Like this is months and months later in the yeah. timeline of his life. Almost. I think it's like a year almost. Per- yeah. Because yeah, the, like the, the warden is walking back and forth and like the camera on the reverse shot is panning across all of these prisoners and it's all of these tall kind of lanky black guys and then all of a sudden, again, it's just Craig Denny who's just schlubby as shit. Without he's got, a shirt. He's got his hands no like shirt. Because they're all like looking like... He stands like an alien. They're all yeah. fit, and he's just like this awkward, like, hands behind his back, and he's like that same... But grin. he has a weird, like, shit-eating grin exactly. on his face to where you're just like, what the fuck? And then, like, they're like... And as you just brought up, they're like... Mr. Alexander, seeing as this is your second offense for diamond smuggling, and you're like, hold on, did I? Did we miss a fucking reel in this movie? Like, yeah, what just happened? We're four minutes into the film at this point. But like, when they showed this movie at Fantastic Fest, and that smash cut occurred, that was the first straight up roar in the theater. Because Somebody just it was dropped just a bomb like, in that auditorium. Well, yeah, because you were just like, wait, what? Like, why are we in Africa? Like, this is insane. It's that was I think one of my first double takes while watching it as well. I was like, uh, yeah, wait, what? Well, it's like you said, it's so episodic. It's so, and that's the rest of the film is like there are these sequences, yeah, of this guy's life, but they're all like every sequence is a different genre, yeah, like you said, because this, this is where the adventure portion of yeah. the movie takes place because There's like snakes and diamonds and like a, a, a cursed ruby, yeah, because he gets out of prison to go get these rubies, which. You know, he meets with the uh, local African tribesmen who, again, this they say that this movie was shot in Africa for certain points. And that's what accounts for the budget. But like when you watch it, it looks like it was shot on like 
a soundstage in Queens with a couple palm fronds in the background. Yeah, just... the, if if they shot in Africa, they didn't shoot anywhere near a jungle because the jungles yeah. that they did shoot in this are just like somebody's backyard. Yeah, Hopefully exactly. Florida Everglades or something. Yeah, we could have shot this scene on Cody's porch. Just like put a palm frond up in the back. And yeah. Like, yeah, there you go. We, we got it. We got the shot. Well, because there are some shots in the film where they're clearly overseas. Like the, like the boat stuff. Yeah, all the right. boat sequences. The Tahiti portion of it. Yeah, there's a part where he's like near the water. It's like, wow, that's not America. That's, yeah. That's the place, you know, but... The Kenyan stuff, I don't one hundred percent buy. Well, I wonder if, like you're saying, that he there are they did he wanted to also use as an excuse to travel, right? He sure. this guy he's using this for all his own benefit. Anyway, he's traveling, and then doesn't get what he needs. Like while he probably never went to Kenya either, and then he just gets back and shoots these corner, you know, these corner shots in his house. Maybe you say, oh, this is Kenya. I also formulated because. Of- Again, we don't know the timeline on how long it took to shoot this movie or like why they went overseas or whatever. But like with a lot of these exploitation movies, the low budget kind of vanity projects, they were shot over long periods of time, sometimes years. So I had this theory for a while that like when you take Denny's background into uh, consideration is that maybe some of the overseas stuff is when he had to get out of the country because his shit was getting too hot. Like, it was like, all right, I'll just take a fucking trip to, to Tahiti and we'll shoot a couple scenes there because, like, the IRS wants to investigate me and I'll have the lawyers basically talk them down a little bit and then I can come back and, like, just run the, the business. And, like, I don't know. Could be complete bullshit, but, again, this is such a print-the-legend kind of experience and trying to document this this movie at all any kind of history is that i'm gonna stick with it you know what just to add to it's kind of a chicken shit bingo shooting schedule i read somewhere else (laughs) today also um that they apparently uh filmed whatever they were gonna they they decided what they were gonna film that day based on like the astrological signs yeah because that's what in the few screenings that it's had because like peter kapowski one of the programmers for Fantastic Fest, and he programs uh, Midnight Madness for TIFF. He programmed it up in Toronto, and then it's played, like you said, in Chicago. Because I think it actually even played at the Music Box. So at I think some they point. had they had a print, I like think an that, actual. I think the, I think the Cinepocalypse group and the Daily Grindhouse was part of getting the print. Yeah, into it. It screened up there, and then it screened at LA or out in LA at Cinefamily. Um, and Arthur came to a couple screenings, and that's where he said the whole like, they sh- you say it. They, you tell me what you dug up, Cody. That they based what they were going to shoot each day on the astro- astrological signs that were drawn that day, or however that works. Yeah, he claims there was no script for the movie. Right. Like this is this is something that Arthur directly has said at these these Q and As, to where he's like. Craig would do an astrological reading and then that would be essentially, that would dictate what they shot that day. And you're like, sure, I guess. That brings me to a question that I was going to save towards the end. But so his character in the film and him in real life, like we're never going to know for sure, obviously, but does he, does he think he's full of shit or does he start to believe that he has these powers? No, I, he doesn't, Let's say there's a thin line between self-confidence and self-belief. I don't necessarily think that he believed that he was some great mystic, but I think, again, that he 
was confident enough in his own abilities as a confidence man mm-hmm. to sell people on this. Because the one thing that's amazing about the movie and Craig's life in general is that you can find clippings and stuff, but a lot of it are press releases that Denny wrote himself. Like everything that he would do, whether it be like the, the latest moon house or Moonstone, I can't remember what the company was named, but I think it's Moonhouse. Uh, but whenever they would put something out, like he would write a press release, like that moment in Variety in the movie where like it says astrologer uh, shoots new movie or something. That was a press release that he wrote for Variety that was real that they included in oh, the wow. movie. So like he wrote all this stuff, but again if you're in control of your own narrative, who's to question it? You know, I think that's a big thing is I don't think that there's to, to answer your question that not necessarily that he believed that he was some great mystic, but I think he believed that he could sell you that he was a great mystic. Fair. Yeah. It seemed like in the film, again, the moment I keep thinking of is him one of the moments he's working with the military and kind of giving him a chart, giving the guy the chart for like how you should plan out your operations. Right. And that feels like, I don't know as much about, the real Craig Denny, but the character Craig Alexander at that moment, it seems matter of fact that he knows what he's doing. Like that this is something I do with the military. I help them. There seems to be no doubt in that scene that like, this is a true thing that he's doing and it's powerful. But I like your idea though, of like, he might know he's full of shit, but he's selling it hard in that scene. This is real and I'm good at it. Yeah. That's what I feel watching that. Again, well, there's no wonder that the, the, the general's plane went down in the tried Capricorn because the things that I can't remember how to say happened in the universe. Because and, angular Uranus moved into angular cancer. Because that's the other thing is there are whole stretches of even voiceover narration where he reads astrological signs and you're like, I don't know what any of this shit They're means. like three to five minutes long. Yeah, they're fucking long as shit. <laughs> And he, and he, you know, I believe he, I believe that he, that is what he says to people, but it just sounds like gibberish. But again, not to keep bringing Trump up, um, but it was something that because we were essentially watching it during a time when a fucking full-blown insurrection was happening in our country, thanks to Donald Trump. But I... Speaking of which, today's the day he was uh, impeached for the second time. Impeached twice. Yes. Thank God. Fuck that guy. But like... I think that there's parallels to draw just in terms of their, again, ability to sell followers on the narrative that they want. Because that's essentially what Trump has done, is that if it's all about, you know, how he's been censored by Twitter, how, you know, he has been mistreated by other factions of the government or like the Republicans have sold him out. He knows exactly what line of bullshit to feed the psychopaths so that they flood the streets and then try to take down the Capitol by storm only to essentially get in there and take selfies of themselves. But again, Denny was kind of the same way because he would even do it. He does it in the movie with Arthur to where like there's that whole uh, section to where they're interviewing an actress to where he even says like actresses are essentially like hamburger meat. You like pound them away. And like, I can't remember it's what the exact, really it's, it's really awful, but 
he, again, he knows that whatever he says to this woman, it doesn't matter because he's in control of the narrative. Like he's the driving force the entire time, which is the, uh, let's say key to being a good con man, I would suppose, because as long as you control the narrative, you control the narrative. Well, it's like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, where Jordan Belfort or Leo as Jordan Belfort is essentially, he teaches you how to sell it the entire time. Like that's what that whole movie is about. It's like, as long as people believe the facade, it doesn't matter if we're shredding documents into the back or that we're selling people these penny stocks that really are essentially worthless. It's all about what we present to you and what you are able to buy from us. And that's a lot of what Denny's doing. I mean, with the movie itself, like the movie is almost made. You wonder like what would have happened to Craig Denny if this movie would have been success, like had been a giant success. You know, was this meant to launch him to another platform of like Hollywood stardom? Like where does his company as like an astrologer go from there? Like, does he think that all of a sudden this would shield him from the IRS or something? It's, it's, interesting to think about because again he's selling a narrative while also confessing to crimes simultaneously yeah there seems to be a a lack of at the same time a very big lack of self-awareness i don't know i i think there's a lot of self-awareness but but i I wonder if it's but it's like you know there's a a fine line too you know because you know for instance to bring trump into it is he's a good con man but he has very little. He has very little self awareness. Sure, like it's it's you. You're so externally, you know, looking at it like well, you know, every the world obviously revolves around me. But the line you're talking about, I'm trying to remember exactly again what he says about the actress. That reads to me like he thought this was a funny line, and this is like the true Craig Denny coming through. Like, right. Oh, you're a douchebag. Like, it's like this line where it comes through. It's like, he's like, oh, this is probably things he's also said to friends in these conversations. Maybe the same guy he's talking to in the scene. You know, it's like when a person who's really good faker lets their real self be known. And you're like, oh, wait, you might have been like a really bad person. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Uh, He, I found it. He says, you know, that's how you deal with actresses. They're like hamburger meat. You buy them by the pound. And you're like, what the fuck, dude? But yeah, no, you're right. Is that it's almost like he's selling this idea of like, because like this whole sequence when he meets with her for whatever movie they're shooting now, because this is after like, he's already watched the premiere of the astrologer. So like, I guess they're on movie number two, which never actually happened in real life. But it sounds like they've put out several films. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, they, like his production company. Like I think he builds the like a quote-unquote empire almost. Right. Yeah. But like at this point, it's almost like him selling Arthur and everybody else on this narrative because they have like art all in the, the lawn with like paintings and shit while just, she's meeting with that's, them. I mean, that's how rich people roll. You just you have all of your oil tapestries framed on easels outside with your white tablecloth uh you know fine china while you're having lunch served to you yeah it's it's so incredible it's interesting that he you know he did have some money because there are moments in this film where 
you could see he's like, oh, this is what a rich person does, but he doesn't know what a rich person does. Right. It's 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 lack of class, he's, a real class, he's like that, Donald Trump. He's that new money. Yeah, it's that you know, and I. Oh no, but yeah, to to bring Trump up again is that it is toilets. that whole like. What, you know what rich people like? Yeah, gold toilets. I'll buy as much McDonald's as I can basically afford. And you're like, all right, I guess. It's hood rich. Yeah, I grew up with a, I grew up with a kid, and his parents had his dad had grown up very poor, and he built a mansion in Franklin, Indiana, or outside of it, and they had a um, replica of Sistine Chapel painted on their ceiling because that's what you do when you're rich. Right. You know, I'm not trying to make fun of their great people, but it's like that's idea of that's classy. Or like – uh, the Queen of Versailles. I know this is a weird comparison, but did, did you see uh, Crazy Rich Asians? Yeah. I did not. Okay. Well, there's a whole like kind of class divide between the one part of the family and the other part of the family where one's new money and one's old money. Right. And the old money acts in a very traditional, formal way to where the new money, which is, um, what's his name? Ken Jeong. Mm-hmm. And they're just like the most opulent, excessive motherfuckers like on the planet wearing track suits yeah wearing track suits like buying diamonds and shit but again it is it's that idea of like what would you do if you just came into a bunch of cash versus if you had this money throughout your entire life and like knew not even how to spend it but like it just was part of your being that's almost like a divide between like money and royalty right and etiquettes and rules and things. Yeah, there, and the, and like yeah, there's a like you're saying, Cody. Like you don't flaunt it sometimes. A part of that because you don't have to, right? Because everyone fucking knows who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like respect is more important than yeah. You think what you think about like Scarface is the definition too of, of new rich. Yeah, I'm just like I'm <laughs> the way he builds his house out. Um, yeah, because that's and a lot of people have taken that as a sign of like what you what you do when you get rich. Um, but to get back to the Sorry. astrologer. No, yeah. no, no. It's a, but like, so we, we go on this diamond hunting adventure. He comes back with the rupees after killing people off in very racist, horrible fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, selling a woman off, as, as Cody even said at one point, to try and escape. And leaving another capture. woman to die in quicksand. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. One woman dies in quicksand. Because it's a Johnny Quest episode. But like, uh, then there's the long, languid passages of him on a boat coming back to America all set to the moody blues. It's Tuesday morning, I believe. Yeah. And that's where like the movie just takes off to a whole nother stratosphere of weird is because it's gorgeous to look at. And they're playing this. They're, they're also playing like they use an instrumental of uh Knights in white satin. At the a Beatles too, right? Is the Beatles in it? Yeah. I, I, is Beatles or Paul McCartney at one moment? Okay. Yeah. Cause I was like, what's that? I know that song. You're like, yeah, they didn't get the, yeah, there, there, there's no way that he he owns that. I'll give but, you that the aerial shots are beautiful to look at, but the rest of it is people walking up and down stairs. I think it looks great because he's on that boat. Like, yeah, that feels- was that was incredible. I'd, I'd like to be on that boat, but the shots were when they weren't the aerial shots or him standing on holding onto a rope, looking off into the horizon. It was just people going up and down the uh, the galley stairs. And then, but there's also those weird moments too, to where like even during the diamond smuggling sequences and stuff to where like, there's that whole like bar sequence that's shot in like oh, fish yeah. eye lens yeah. and like smash cuts to like cigarettes and urinals. And like, man, this, it's such a strange Martin, your face when it kept cutting back to the cigarettes and the urinal, <laughs> well, it was weird because it would do like, and then all the nude, they were like the jump cuts. It, he would do jump cut push-ins. So yeah. it would go instead of a zoom, 
It would, would just go, go. It would go. Be three shots from like, like a bam, wide, bam, bam, bam. Yeah, like yeah. wide to MCU, like clo- an extreme close up of like of urinal cakes and cigarettes. I'm like, but yeah, in this musical interlude you're talking about at the bar, and yeah, it's like the it's like the bathroom at um, Kitty Cohen's. It's like just boobies all over and like playboys. Yeah. And it's like, what is going on? I think here? it even had the sailor doors, like the two like oh the saloon doors. Yeah, the saloon doors. Yeah, where they're like, ugh. It's really, and I think that's a moment like that sequence in the film it's really a sequence of like okay this is not just an inept filmmaker trying to just tell his life story there's something he's trying to do here he's got a vision he's got a vision like he's trying to show some weird slice of life and i don't know what it is but oh and there's the one drug dealer guy sitting in a booth and we're so one guy comes up gives him money sits down the guy Goes in his pocket and tosses out a baggy guy. Takes it. He's happy and fine. Another guy comes up, gives him money, sits down. The two, the women to the left and the right of the drug dealer, just pull their tops down, and the they're like forty-five-year-old women. Oh yeah, that's right. Just weird boob shots. Weird boob shots. It kind of reminds me of the boob shots in Miami Connection, where they go to the biker bar. Oh yeah, a it's little like, bit. It reminds me of that. Where it's just like, what? No, I don't need to see that. <laughs> <laughs> that's unnecessary. But then we get to the love story portion of the movie, too, to where he comes back, finds success, and then rescues Darian from her, a life of prostitution. prostitution? Y- years of it, I'm assuming. Yeah, because like they, uh, the part we did leave out is that they got married briefly again in the two minutes. This movie is so much movie. Like you, even like recapping it, you recall you're like, oh yeah, we left that part out where they got married, but it was like for two minutes, and then he went to Kenya, and it's like, but they were married, they got divorced, she left, but I guess to become a prostitute. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of which is um, where the carnival leads you ultimately. Reminds me of Scrody McBooger balls on South Park, <laughs> where it's like, and that part in Amsterdam, oh my god, you know, it's like that kind of thing. Yeah, where it's everything in the in the kitchen sink. But it's it's he's trying to show a woman in like the most barren depths debased. of of just moments away from you know suicide that they could possibly be. She's been a, a prostitute in, in a one room brothel basically for however many years. She's yeah, just he, passed out rat. drunk on the bed. Yeah, there's a rat. There's a bottle of milk of magnesia. There's, there's a big tub of lube that's KY. open. Yeah. yeah. Well, not KY. I think it's just Vaseline, which is I think even you're right. more I think disgusting. it is just Vaseline. And then on the mirror has one of the, the great moments in the movie is God is dead. Mm-hmm. Shit on life. Hell is earth. Yeah. Just written on the mirror and like lipstick almost. And they, yeah, and they do close-ups of it too, just yeah. to like make sure you don't miss out on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of some like this scene, there are on a scene level are very cliche. Like he, you could tell he's taking from movies he's seen. Sure. But there's elements where it's like, how do you show a woman at her worst? Prostitute drug addict. And, but, but it's like anal go, prostitute, but he, but he goes past cliche and shows all the things you normally wouldn't show in a polite film. Yeah. Like, especially 1975 Hollywood. It's like, um, oh, the idea to put milk magnesia. Okay, like, oh, what's she swallowing? Sorry. But it's like, and then and then also have. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, but you can see. Well, I, like the Vaseline the is Vaseline, a clear indicator of what's going on there. Right. So you get, you get the sense of like, here's a guy. And I, I do believe that he had as hand in every single part of this movie, including mm-hmm. production design. Yes. And so there's moments that where you see him peek through as well. 
it's that extra thing of like, oh my God, is that? Oh no. You know? Yeah. And it's like, again, a cliche scene with weird realism to it. There was like, I, yeah, he comes and she's in such a state. He comes in and then she doesn't even really come to all that much. She just is aware there's a presence in the room. She's like, she oh, literally just leave, goes, leave just the put money the money on the yeah. table and then do whatever. And just get put the, and, like she's used to it. Almost it. it she's, not she's almost used it to implies, having a revolving door of strangers just come in, have their way with her, and leave the money her. on the table. And be out. See, I didn't even put that together when we were watching it. I assumed that the Vaseline was just for, and I'm not uh, a doctor, but I thought she was just dry, wore out and dried up from all the use. Could have been. I just, I automatically inferred butt fucking. There we go. Obviously, you're not a golfer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then I think we only have like 20 minutes left in the movie after there because it's like. Really? Yeah, it's well, hard to. I'm having trouble remembering everything. Honestly, talking, and we just watched it. I've seen it's this movie 15 times, probably, and I can't remember all of it. Like the movie it, itself is like a temporal anomaly. Like it, it. How long is the movie? 77 minutes. It feels like it's two and a half hours. But it also yeah. feels but, like ten minutes it, too. Yeah, it feels like it's two and a half hours, but not in like a, a problem with momentum or anything. I mean, because this thing is. Pedal to the metal, balls to the wall, exposition, and also we didn't even talk about his his narration of plot between scenes or whatever. He's just like throwing in more more substance to everything to to fill in the gaps that he doesn't have time to put on screen. Yeah, he because you're covering so much plot ground, and that's the part that actually makes me believe the whole idea of like maybe they were shooting for something more than a movie, a television series, or stuff because there's clearly connective tissue uh that he's throwing in as like voiceover narration so that we don't lose the thread of like what's happening on screen and it's also assembled by a veteran television editor who like because the movie's actually technically pretty well made like as cody kind of points out like yeah there's some amateurish framing and shot design and selection at times but it's shot from a real cinematographer. There are t- there are movie or uh, images in it that are just they burn onto your brain. And then there's also just the way that it's paced and edited, and like we even get the impressionistic uh, fight at the end, which is one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever, where like we witness an entire breakup in a restaurant in slow motion. It's beautiful through editing and no dialogue. It's all montage and it's in fucking incredible. It it feels there. And that's set to the moody blues again, right? I think so. And there are moments here, like you're saying there's connective tissue. That scene felt to me that it was (laughs) not planned. That these yeah. scenes without dialogue are fuck. We fucked up the sound for that. Day. Yeah, no, that's what I took is that something went wrong with like what they were saying, and it's the editor like sitting there and going, "What do I do with this? How do I make this make some kind of sense?" And then, well, we definitely know it couldn't have been a problem with content because earlier on in the film, a another woman from the bar or from uh, Tahiti or wherever they are gets screwed over by the guards guy from the Kenyan jail, and she comes. Roaring, roaring in and says, I'm not going to get screwed over by no N word, and just pulls out a gun and shoots him dead. And we're all just like, What? Yeah. No, it, it, it feels like it, there were some problems when they were making it. Um, and like ne- when you need voiceover in this respect, and so much and of so it, so much is like 
Uh, and the thing is, you think about it too. There's a lot in this movie, but you still only get 77 minutes, which is short for yeah. a feature film. And it's not, there's no padding. There's no padding in this film. It's it's all like you're saying, content and plot. In fact, too much. Yeah. Because you know some films, if you're gonna have a marriage thing, it'd be a good 45 minutes, but it's two minutes. Well, and then it also becomes a fucking murder. Like mystery, well, not mystery, but like almost like a revenge, like jealous husband thing. Because on the downfall side, Darian starts cheating on him and he shoots his, her fucking lover out a window at one point. <laughs> and then they're back together. Yeah. And everything's And then she's cool. gone again. And she's gone. It doesn't, yeah. The and then the movie ends from with a quote he probably from threw, King Lear. He probably threw her in some quicksand. Yeah. Like it's deranged. That's the only word I can even come up with for this movie. It's it's deranged. Uh, you know, when you see I think sometimes we were saying like an auteur film like Reffin said. Yeah. There are certain movies you watch and you're like this is a glimpse into this person's mind and or soul. Like, they're just bearing it all, or at least you're seeing a part of that. This definitely feels like it. Like, well, you're, you're seeing inside a guy's head. Well, it does a thing that, and I'm going to go into this with my double feature pick, so I don't want to elaborate too much, but it does a thing in 70s exploitation that I like the most. Is that it's the product of a person or an artist who somehow found access to a movie camera, but should have never been allowed like near one. But that's what makes it so pure. It's the undiluted transmission of like their, their like id almost. And you just get to know who they are for better or worse, you know, but like this is, it's a movie with a worldview and it, that worldview transcends any kind of, budgetary or creative limitations they might have. Like it just, you're watching it and you're going, this is, as you just said, like, this is who this person is. And in the astrologer, almost quite literally, like this is a guy making a movie about himself that reads almost like a deathbed confessional. Only we don't know if he ever died. Well, it's interesting when you think about again, the citizen Kane, that being um, Orson Welles first film um, right. and there is a sense in, you know, thinking back to having to watch that in every film class of a lot of stuff that's so great in that is he didn't know the rules. Like he yeah. came from theater and the radio. So there's things he does. And why don't we do that? And, you know, getting Greg Tolan to do these, you know, deep focus shots is very much like, we'll just do it like theater, but you know, show it all ends up being brilliant and rewriting film language, but not because he went in to do that. No, you know, and it feels. I mean, obviously, Orson Welles, I think, is a better filmmaker than, <laughs> than Craig Denny. Um, but in a very similar way, they just they kind of didn't know what they're doing, and still kind of struck their own kind of pay dirt in very different ways. Yeah, and uh, to a, I'm gonna talk about again a double feature the the movie that this reminds me of the most. But let's say to a lesser degree, it also reminds me of guys like Cassavetes mm. or. Uh, Vincent Gallo in a weird way of like people who frankly just didn't, it's not even not knowing the rules. Like they clearly just don't fucking care. Like they're just like, yeah, I'm here to make a movie. It's my movie. So I don't give a shit about your rules. Like I'm just going to express myself in the purest like fashion possible. It's also like 
the movies of the guy who is our guest this week, Mickey Reese, who reminds me a lot of that tour. It's just sort of like, okay, cool. Like movies are the, the, like the way that I express myself and like, why be shackled by the limitations of like, well, no, you know, you, you can't cross the, the, what is it? The, the, the 180 access, the 180 access. You, you have to, you can't have flashbacks within flashbacks. You can't do this. It's just sort of like, well, what if I had a talking philosophical dog? Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm just going to make my movie and it's going to be an expression of like who I am as a person. And that's what the astrologer is to me. And that's why I love it so much. And that's why, like, for me, this is the ultimate secret handshake. Like for, for me personally, like when I want to meet you and I'm really, I'm like, okay, this person's on the level. I'll show you the astrologer. And then like we can bro down over whatever because nothing like this exists right now. Like this is one of the few that like, because of the, the, the access that we talk about so many times on this show to where like everything's at your fingertips. It's great to know that there's something still out there that you're like, yeah, no, you have to search for this. You have to know somebody and they have to trust you enough to be like, Oh yeah, you're cool. Okay. We will watch the astrology together. And then, you're part of like, as kind of what I said in the intro to that taps and tape screening that you went to Cody is that when you see it, you become a part of like an elite group of folks or like, I've seen the astrologer. There's probably only a couple thousand people in existence who have seen this movie. And now I'm one of them. That's like the ultimate secret handshake. That's why this is the season finale of this show. Absolutely. That's a great way to lead into questions. Maybe. Yeah, good segue, my friend. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning Sand. Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you back with questions about 1975's The Astrologer to kick this off since this is my party. Cody. What you got? If you were to make a movie about your own life story, write, direct, produce, star in, whose music would you steal to score it? Oh, man. Oh, Jesus. Um... It'd probably be, I mean, 
there'd be a lot of uh you know early 2000s emo stuff in there there'd be some my chemical romance some thrice uh, but there'd also be plenty of hip-hop and all sorts of other things i mean i had i had quite the the mixture i mean there's definitely in my younger days there's going to be some garth brooks and some uh, melissa etheridge and then uh yeah as we get older some four non-blondes <laughs> yeah and then uh, then there'll be some green day and uh that'll lead into some blink 182 and then a little more you know, my chemical romance. This isn't fucking boyhood, Cody. <laughs> well, Jesus look, it's he it started out in his childhood. <laughs> yeah, he's pickpocketing for thirty <laughs> seconds of the film. It's true, Martin. Um, I would probably do hundred percent Bruce Springsteen. I knew it. But, wow, but it would be. That is some basic bitch white boy shit right there. I love Bruce Springsteen. I you do haven't too, seen but... how magically this man will sing along to a Bruce Springsteen record. Let I me never tell you. have witnessed that. That's true. It's a, it's a feast for the eyes and the ears. But I would either do that or I would do New Order. Okay. It'd be very different movies. Interesting. Yeah. How about you? Roxy Music. 100%. I love me some Brian Ferry. That was actually on my in my head list, too. Yeah. Also, also your Schrader fan, he loves him some Brian Ferry. Yeah, I think I would maybe even go broader and just say Brian Ferry so that you could do, like, the records that he made after Roxy Music. Yeah, especially Slave to Love and shit would be cool. And, yeah, well, and the cover ones, too, so you could kind of throw some, like, cover songs that he did in His there. Jealous Guy is really good. Yeah, it's really, really good. So that would be mine. Question number two, fellas. We kind of blew through that. We also didn't really mention during the main portion of the podcast that that's the music is basically there's a few legal reasons that that the film has never come out on home video because of like rights stuff. But the music is like the main one. Like nobody wants to essentially put this movie out because they're like, well, what if we get sued for millions of dollars because of all these unlicensed songs in it? And they would just go down, and then the movie would be a non-starter in terms of any kind of profit. It's interesting, like that'll happen on Netflix, where you'll see a film with different, they'll have different music cues, yeah, because of the rights yeah. issues. Well, do- like in Scrubs and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, TV confession: Me and Carrie have been watching Dawson's Creek. <laughs> they don't use the theme song. They don't, don't do use that. the. Yeah, is that the? I believe it's Melissa. I can't remember who does the theme song for it, but yeah, the I don't want to wait for our lives to be over. Yeah, we see you make fun of me, but you all know that song. I watched Dawson's back in the day. I just didn't watch it when I was 30 something years old. Carrie'd never seen it before and she's watching it and like I knew every plot beat and Mm. she was like, how much of this do you watch? I was like, is Joey going to pick Dawson or Pacey? Well, that's and unfortunately revisiting it not to turn this into a Dawson's Creek podcast, but like that's the part of it that like I forgot becomes so repetitive is that it just becomes the same plot line over and over of like Dawson gets jealous. Joey gets with a new guy. It's usually Pacey and Pacey like Pacey ran through some fucking pussy. Man. <laughs> like, he plowed. I don't, I don't remember. In Dawson. Ma- maybe if I watched it, I would. But he it's bangs so far the away. hot teacher in the first season. Yep. Oh, really? Like that's his main romantic plot line of like, should he or shouldn't he stay with hot 30 something teacher? And you're like, all right, this is weird. Well, I didn't realize they recently redid Dawson's Creek. It's called a teacher and it's on FX and Hulu. Yeah, it's true. Also, it's a plot point on Riverdale, which is also doing a lot of Dawson's Creek. Yeah, I, but like uh, their their main theme song, we looked it up because we couldn't figure out why. 
Apparently what happened... What did they replace it with? It's Well, that's where I'm going with okay. it, is that um, apparently what happened is when um, the CW or whoever, I, I believe it's Warner Brothers owns uh, CW, when they first put uh, the first couple seasons of Dawson's Creek out on DVD, um, they didn't do well. So they basically let the rights to the theme song lapse to save money. So... And then when they started putting it out again and licensing it for streaming, they couldn't get the rights back for the main theme song. So they're essentially using the theme song, which is terrible, by the way. It's just totally awful. But like they're using the theme song that they used in international releases where they didn't have the rights for songs overseas. So you basically are just watching the international version of Dawson's Creek the entire time on Netflix. How did we case. get here? How did we get here? Um, real quick about Dawson's <laughs> Creek. That's the only reason I got dates in high school because I used to look like a younger Joshua Jackson and girls would call me Pacey. I can see it. So I had that. Pacey plowed, man. I did not, but it helped me a little bit. Like he destroyed. I remember him out. more from Skull and Bones and. Oh, the Skulls. Yeah. I love Skulls. And um, uh, Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions. And Our also the show. The show later that he was in that's actually pretty good, Fringe. Oh, yeah. Was on Fox. Uh-huh. And then recently he was in um, An Affair, The Affair. Oh, I didn't on, watch that on one. Showtime. The one with Dominic West. Yeah, and... he's the other guy. Oh. So he's the other. Uh, Again, plowing. Yes. Like Joshua Jackson, master plower. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, question number two about the astrologer from 1975. Hey. Uh, if you worked at a carnival. What job would you have, Martin? Hands down, I would make the funnel cakes. That's my favorite. What the fuck? It's my favorite food on the planet. Is funnel cake? Is Seriously. there some weird Martin's childhood shit about funnel cakes? This one does not have a weird story. Um, if the funnel cakes, <laughs> if the funnel cakes were extra fresh and hot, would you be sure to hold them with your one gloved hand? Yes. Okay. How fat would you be if you worked the funnel cakes? It'd be bad, dude. Like so fat bastard. My. My my really good friend Elise and I, our secret handshake is funnel cakes, and so we. She's pretty into it. She and I, um, we all we all live in Atlanta. Um, she and her husband and I would like go to the the, the fair, like the Georgia fair, as one does, as one does. I and, mean, where else are you going to find funnel cakes? Well, and it was funny because, like, he liked snack food, but, like, nowhere near as much as she and I did. Like, we would just get sick on candy all the time whenever we have movie nights and stuff. So we would go. And what was your candy of choice? Um, well, she and I would just go nuts. So she would always get – you would love it. She liked the gummies and the ribbons. So we'd get Ooh. that. And then, But I liked chocolate as well. So we would was just, she a Twizzlers or a Red Vines woman? Red Vines. Fuck that shit, man. Yeah. Ugh. But, I, but yeah, so – but we would go and we just, we would make a beeline for the fucking funnel cakes and we'd get like three of them. That's and disgusting. The That's last time lot. we had it, there was a that little, is a lot there of was, funnel cakes. There was this Jesus. little fair like right across from where they live. Wait, how big do they make them in Indiana? Are they smaller this than the a, ones this in Texas? Is in Georgia. Oh, okay, well, yeah. how big do they make them in Georgia? Because the ones here, it's like this. there okay. is no yeah. such thing as a small funnel cake. I'm just I've thinking, man. When I was a kid and I got one. funnel cake, if I ate, if I made it through a whole one, which I never did, like I mean, I still felt kind of sick afterwards. Like, well, I, yeah, I enjoyed it whilst eating it. It's all dough and batter and powdered sugar. No, even in the Northeast, they were as big as your head, man. That's why you loved them. As a kid, like yeah. elephant ears too, which is those oh, were. Oh, wait, what? 
El- elephant ears is um, it's also done in a similar style. Well, you have the um, the deep fryer, but instead of it being like a mess, uh-huh. it's actually more like a flaky. Like it looks almost like a, almost like a uh, a Danish. It's like one piece, um, and it's very uh, like covered in cinnamon. But it looks like a giant elephant ear. So it's kind of like a churro. It's it has a taste like a churro, but it's one big flat piece of dough. It's a churro. It's kind of like, it's kind of like fry bread a little bit. I've heard. Like sure. Oh, okay, now so, I'm hearing it. Yeah. yeah, I see what you're saying. I'm ta- I'm tasting it. Yeah. I'll so, give it a seven on the imaginary taste level. So that was He's my quick picking answer. up what you're putting down. But yeah. yeah, it's an easy. easy Did you guys ever me. have uh, like fried Oreos or Snickers bars? Never at, once at the carnivals. Not once. Not never. we had those on the Atlantic City boardwalk, and oh god. I um, mean, they I, they are here. They exist. I've just never had one. Why? I had one last week. You're guys. saying it was such disdain that it turns me off. I had one last week. Yeah. It was really good. I no longer have the WAP right now because <laughs> of Cody's disdain. Well, I'm just go get you a fried Oreo. I'm sure you'll get nice and whoppy. Oh, yeah. You're going to have to get a bucket and a mop, baby. <laughs> I, I worked at a restaurant in Atlanta, and um, late at night when it was like not a lot of customers, my manager would say, hey, what do you want to put in the deep fryer? And yeah. so he, would, he battered pieces of bread pudding. And deep fried those, and we dipped them in, in melted chocolate. Fuck yeah! It was like genius move. He, and we had Oreo. He would, he would goes goes. Who's bringing the Oreos today? We used to bring a pack of Oreos. We fry them at work at night. He's a great, great man. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he's an innovator. Really, Carrie's dad got us a air fryer for Christmas. Mm-hmm. I've been frying everything. <laughs> Shit, you shouldn't even fry. But also, my my freezer is now just full of dill spears and chicken wings. Well, when we were over at your house last time to watch the astrologer, you, Carrie sounded like an ant. She goes, "Do you guys want some fried dill spears?" Yeah, she's like, "Do you want some pickles?" <laughs> you guys want some pickles? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right, Cody, what's your answer? Cody, what's your... Yeah, well, Carnival Ride. I forgot what the question... Oh, okay, Carnival divorced. Ride Operator. Uh, the uh, UFO spinning around thing. Gra- oh, Gravitron. the Saucer? Yeah, the Gravitron. So you'd be a ride, Carney. Uh, I'd be the dude sitting in the middle cranking that thing. I'm watching people go around. I would I would have it in my contract that I do not clean up the vomit. That's somebody else's job. But I would uh, be the guy that like, got out and just like walked around people. Like, as you know, you're standing, but you're completely yep. vertical to the actual ground but because of the centrifugal forest you're what just walking around it's we've like, all been to the boardwalk okay, okay fine my uh but that was always that and the zipper were always my favorite rides oh, yeah. wait what's the zipper uh it's the one where you and somebody else get locked into a cage and then that cage is on a conveyor belt that goes around a thing that's like uh like the shape of a lowercase l and then that entire so as the as you're in a cart the cart itself spins around and it's on a track that goes around that l and then that entire l itself also has the center axis so the entire thing is spinning it's a, it, it's, 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 it's my puke, favorite ride. It's a puke. Uh, I'm utterly ensorcelled by what you're saying because I don't know what black magic you're describing. I don't right now. see it them. It sounds great. I don't really see them anymore in like the traveling. Yeah, because people probably show. fucking died on people what you probably just described. Did die, and it's also probably an insurance nightmare. Uh oh, Martin think, has a dark story. I already see it working well, in his brain. Well, I think my, you know, I know that there's that joke on uh, Awesome Powers where he hates carnies, right? I think my dad actually does. Small hands smell, smell like, like cabbage. cabbage. I think my dad does hate carnies because we went to the fair one time. And I I think it was the Gravitron. I said, Dad, I want to ride the Gravitron. And my dad goes, all right. He's like, see that guy? And he points to the guy working the machine. He's like, that guy probably put that together. Do you trust your life 
in that guy's hands? And I was Damn. like, no, so, daddy. He's like, then let's keep walking. Then why did your dad take you to the carnival at all? <laughs> we only went to get snacks and shit like that. Uh, and yeah. He went cake. to eat funnel, funnel cake. cake. Yeah. Nine pounds of funnel cake, but yeah. you weren't allowed on the Gravitron. Nope. <laughs> See that guy? Do you trust him? No, daddy. Well, nope. Yeah. I mean, answer? to be fair, the I only do. two things in this world I can't stand. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, though, like when we went to uh, Six Flags the last time, Cody, yep. I mean, like I look at the 15 year olds that they have operating oh, the, the roller coasters and I'm like, but they didn't you know, put them is, together. They didn't put them together. No, but I'm like, there might be a switch that they forget. Like, well, it's like they're action, 15. The Action Park documentary. Yeah. It's like that <laughs> kids are in charge of your life. And that's I so I've definitely had the same thoughts that Martin's did, Dad. Mine weren't ever based on read on uh, sex, creed, race, or gender, though, like your father's. <laughs> <laughs> so... What was your answer for you? Oh, yeah. Um, Ferris wheel. I'd probably work in the haunted house. Oh, yeah. This, the spook house. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I always, Is that what they call at, them at the in carnival, Georgia? At the, at, the car, at the carnival, I went, they always call it the spook house. Okay. It's also what he calls it in Ed Wood. He goes, ooh, the spook house. Oh, yeah, yeah. you're right. But yeah, it would totally be the guy who like works in there or like helps, you know, keep it running or whatever because that seems weird. Another and uh, it's where people uh, stash their sprite bottles full of acid when they're running from cops. Yeah, it's true. Like in good time. Another great uh, Cardinal movie though is uh, possibly I was going to do as a double feature is Funhouse. Toby Hooper. This made me think of that a little bit. Oh, oh yeah, especially that opening sequence. Yep, very much. Question number three. If you could ask Craig Denny about any one element about this movie, what would it be? Like, if we could find him wherever he's hiding or dead, do a seance, some mystical bullshit, what the fuck would you want to ask Craig Denny? Me first? Yeah, Martin. I mean, it would kind of be a general question, but I would say, what were you trying to do? Like, I, I would honestly ask, like... Like, what was your goal? What here? was your goal here? And and what is like what was the intention behind this film? You know, and through that hopefully get to some kind of answers about are you aware of how like much you're bearing yourself in this, you know, about your you know, were you intending to kind of tell the world what you really like? Um that's kind of what I'd ask about. Cody, I'd ask why he hates everyone that tries to help him. That's fair. Well, I think that's kind of answered, though, is that he's that is the one thing. And, and, and it's the part where I kind of disagree with Martin on the self-awareness bit to where, like, he paints himself as the villain. That's that's my main thing. So, like, clearly he knew, like, but he speaks of what, himself like the character speaks of himself as this, as if he's the hero. No, 100 percent. Yeah. Like, but he also knows that what he's doing is wrong and leading to his downfall. So, like, that's the part that I was most curious about, too. Just actually. side tangent. I, I also don't think we just directly talked about how the film ends. With a quote from King Lear? Uh, no, before that. Uh, everybody leaves him. His uh, fortune is collapsing. And then there's a newspaper article that flash that says, uh, Astrologer predicts mother to have long, healthy life. Next paper, Astrologer's mother dies. And then <laughs> he's... Lonely by the pool, nobody next to him, cuts a black, the end. Yeah. I think 
Do you think his mother died while he was filming in this? And then he was just That's, like, Screw yeah, it, I'm I, done. I wondered that too. Or like, if it was just a thing to where I was like, oh, fuck. Like, my mom died. I can't do like this astrology bullshit anymore. I think if I could ask Craig Denny one question, it would simply be where did the diamond smuggling come from? Like, why did he feel the need? to replace the con artistry of like what's interesting is that like there are specific parts of his own story that he leaves out like he's a carny which is clearly not true but like you know he learned his his confidence skills somewhere and the carny is kind of the beginning of that but then you know the back half of this is a Almost not one-to-one autobiography, but there's a lot in there. But I always wondered, like, why diamond smuggling? Why this overseas adventure to where, like, it doesn't line up with the rest of his narrative like the other parts do, like even the heavily fictionalized ones? Like, why wouldn't it be about you building something? Or is the diamond smuggling just, like, your grand... Again you kind of confessing to where like, it's this grand metaphor to where like he saw diamonds that were being guarded by snakes, you know, like his, was his brain even operating on that level or like, was it just like, he was like, no, nah, I wanted to make like a fucking like Alan Quartermass like type adventure. Yeah. That's we're we're also like. in the seventies and it just seems like an, an excuse yeah. for an adventure. Yeah. No, 100%. And also like him thinking to himself, kind of like what Martin said earlier, what do movies look like? Like, what do I want to see in a movie? You know? Yep. Yeah, I think he comes in not as filmmaker with any knowledge of, of film filmmaking, but to come and say, oh, I like this in a movie. Oh, you got to have yeah. a lot of adventure. You know, it's like in Ed Wood, like the uh, guy who gives him money, I guess Ron Howard's daddy goes, man, there'll be a big explosion. So what people expect from a bigger movie. So, yeah. 100%. You, think, uh, you think George Lucas saw this and then was like, oh, man, Indiana Jones. I mean, it does predate Indiana Jones by does, half a decade. Does, but he was pulling on a lot of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Totally joking there. Yeah, yeah, I knew you were, but I was like, Lucas would would kill us. Next question. So this one's kind of weird. It's a little off the beaten path, but it, are there any? Since we can't see this movie, and it's a secret handshake movie, particularly because we can't see this movie. Are there any lost movies that you would want to see? Like, are there any at the top of your list, Martin? Um, uh, London at Midnight. Okay. Um, the Lon Chaney uh, senior film. London at Midnight, right? Yeah. That's what it's called? Yeah. Um, which was actually remade as Return of the Vampire with... Sorry, Mark of the Vampire with Bela Lugosi. Same director, Todd Browning. But it is one of the lost films because it's gone like they i believe a lot of it was lost in the fire and all they have are images and it's um about it's, it's actually about a con artist and it's about some con artists who pretend to be vampires to to trick other people and it's one of um lon cheney's i think one of his best makeup where he has these little filed down teeth like a whole row of teeth and he has this awesome top hat long stringy hair um, and his eyes, and he did some really weird stuff like, with like tape where his eyes are open really wide. Um, and I've just seen images from that and it's like red, red people talking about what it was like when it was shown. It's, I think it's a silent film, like one of the last 
big silent films, like 29 or something like that. Yeah. Before, like, talkies took over. I think it was one of the last ones he did before, Todd Browning did before he did Dracula 31. Yeah. Um, but that would probably be it for me. Cody? Donner, Superman 2. Can't you kind of sort of see that yeah but i'm talking about like full on done. oh you want like the yeah. full like, like he, he wasn't fucked with yeah. yeah 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 that's i, a good I have call. seen the uh the 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 donner cut that you can do they right they, they did that alamo one time and aaron got me tickets got us tickets for my birthday one year so that was it was cool to see it but but you can see it's kind of cobbled together oh yeah yeah I mean, oh there's there's, there's, there's the yeah. hundred there's test shots in it it's yeah yeah it's um a real close one for me too would be it's it's again a, a film more of the film would be the keep like the longer version that he shot. Um, there's like, supposedly like it's supposed to be three hours long. Um, right. And you could tell in that film, it's just chunks cut out or they skip ahead. That film is messy in a lot of ways. I just love to see what else is there. And of course he'll never, again, it's another film that can't be shown because Tangerine dream, the rights. Yeah. The reason they can't release it again, even on DVD. So yeah, that entire movie is lost to time. Yeah. How about you? There's like so many that I would want to pick from, but there's, okay. So there's an anecdote. We were talking about cruising off mic in between segments and it made me think of this. So I'm going to go with this. I don't know if this is the number one, but it's De Palma. So like it always kind of percolated in my head, but there's a uh, anecdote in Jason Zineman's uh, shock value where he talks about, how De Palma was going to do cruising like way before, you know, Friedkin didn't like, this is like mid seventies. He talks about it in the documentary too, De Palma, right? Yeah. He was a little bit. That, yeah. Because he and uh, Steven Spielberg and Margot Kidder were like going to the gay, like NYC, like leather and fetish bars together. Which itself is That's like... a trio right there. Yeah, like I would watch that movie just to be like, well, there's De Palma, who's clearly like kind of a perv and is like proud of it. Margot Kidder, who was like a known like wild child. And then Spielberg, just hanging out in these gay leather bars that like... And like S&M bars and stuff too for like quote unquote research or whatever. <laughs> what if Steven Spielberg was in like a gimp outfit the whole time? Just like wandering around, like think, just imagine that for five seconds. I imagine it for five hours. Yeah. Like, you know what? I want to watch this movie. I changed my answer, but no, like De Palma's cruising because like, I love Friedkin's cruising and obviously Friedkin's cruising could actually be its own answer too, because like, I'd love to see the quote unquote hardcore footage that was shot for that movie that you know, the MPAA basically made him cut out and is now like it was lost or like damaged or something like you can never ever see it before, but he apparently actually filmed like real gay sex acts and stuff too. Like the stuff that is still pretty heavily alluded to in cruising, like fisting and things like that. But like, I would have loved to seen what De Palma even does with that because like where Friedkin's is this gritty, hardcore cop thing in the same vein as like, it's basically like Friedkin being like, all right, I made French connection like a decade ago. Now I'm going to make my hardcore cop movie. No pun intended, but like <laughs> for the eight for like the early eighties NYC, what does that look like? And that's what cruising was, but like cruising just got away from him in a few different ways. 
But like De Palma applying that gliding omnipresent camera and like set pieces to like this gay S&M underworld would watch the fuck out of that. There's an, there's another um, thinking of other film that has a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor is Event Horizon. And, yeah, and which you can't find because that was lost to a that fire. Was, that was lost. So I think even Paul W. Sanderson came out and said it's gone. Yeah, like but they can't restore it. There is, there are though, there were test VHS copies, I believe, sent out to either critics or other people. It's on there. Like that okay. footage exists on VHS. Sort of like the Nightbreed, like Cabal cut. How Correct. They, they cobbled that together when they found like old VHS tapes originally. Same thing. And also uh, the stuff we saw for Friday 13th Part 2. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's like, you know, these VHS, either um, it was either dailies or but a lot of this was actually cut into the movie. And from my understanding, it's all the stuff you see on the DVD they watch of what happened to the last crew. Like longer scenes, not just flashes. Oh. It's real, but the reason they cut a lot was it's real. It made it from a lot longer, and it's really fucked up. Yeah, like long, drawn out, really torture, crazy torture scenes of what happened. happened was they showed it to test audiences, and the audiences ripped out their own eyes. Well, I mean, it was. I don't think they ever showed it to test audiences, but it was like I so, was yeah, joking. No, I know, okay. I know. I'm just saying, like, I don't think that ever happened, but it was so uh, fucked up that I'd love to see that film. Yeah, me too. One hundred percent. All right, fellas. Would you, could you, should you remake this? Cody. You you can't. It's beyond <laughs> it's beyond lightning in a bottle. It's like a tardigrade in the sun. It, you can't it's it's not possible. Yeah, agreed. I would not make it myself. Um I think if you found a person crazy enough. And if you can find the research about him as a real person, do a film that's like about the making of Astrologer. Kind of like um, Disaster the Frank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think that worked really well as kind of a companion piece. That to movie's the, great. Yeah, I loved it. It was my favorite film of South by the year, but it, it, it's a companion piece to The Room, you right. know, because it it's based, it's assuming you've seen the films, you're seeing the kind of, it's also kind of making fun of the whole, and here's, we got the idea for this you know, thing you see, yeah. um, but also acting as a crazy movie in itself. So I think that would be if we could find someone and do the behind the scenes, like they're making the, I guess it's a show or a film with the making of the Godfather. I love those kind of stories. Yeah. Um, Isn't, you know who playing? I would pick to direct that though? If they did the, the room style uh, making of who thing. Um, is it Van Zant that does the directed the one with uh, Kirsten Dunst and she's super depressed and there's like a planet von coming Trier. into the planet Lars von, von Trier. Yeah. Lars von Trier yeah to make the astrologer I yeah. would actually ask I would probably say Charlie Kaufman or Michelle Gondry would be the one I would pick oh Gondry to do like that kind of that kind of thinking Gondry doesn't seem sinister enough to me no but to do the 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 outside stuff because it would have to be funny Reffin. Have Reffin come in and well, do I mean, it. yeah, as the, as the fan, you know, yeah, have him do the he do the crazy research, or have him do my imaginary thing of who he was. Because I got to, film. I got to actually ask uh, Nick Reffin about that because I've interviewed him twice, and in the because this was pr- when he hosted the screening, it was pre Neon Demon. That was the movie he was working on, or may have just finished at that point. And like he had said in his intro, he was like, I love this movie so much that I stole 
a whole sequence from it for my next movie. Hmm. And so I interviewed him for Neon Demon when I was at BMD and I flat out asked him, I was like, hey, so like, I'm a huge fan of the astrologer. I was at the screening that you hosted. Like you said that you were going to steal this for it. Did you do it? And he just kind of laughed at me and he was like, man, I talk a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally his answer. Like he just kind of laughed because he, he just, he was like, he knew he got called on his bullshit at that point, which I thought was awesome though, too, because I'm going to talk about a guy who has both a weird amount of self-awareness and no self-awareness at the same time. Yeah. So is that your answer too? like, don't remake it, but possibly, um, I would watch, you know what? No, you can't remake it for the same reasons Cody already said. Like, that's pretty self-evident. It's kind of a dumb question unto itself on this one. But I would watch, I know that people were developing, I love the idea of what you guys are talking about, like a disaster artist style, like making of type biopic almost movie. But I know there were a group of folks after it first screened at Fantastic Fest working on a documentary about the movie's making and trying to dig up more about Craig Denny and like really investigate and interrogate who he was as a person. But that project fell through because they were working in conjunction with a company who was trying to put the movie out at the time who I know some people involved. And once they basically realized that the movie was unreleasable, then that project went away because it's like, well, there's no commercial viability here because nobody can actually see the astrologer. But like if somebody put the astrologer out, that's what I would want to watch. I would want to watch a more of like a feature length bonus feature of like, how do we interrogate this movie and like who made it? Yeah. Yeah. That's that, definitely one of those films where the making of it seems like it might be even more interesting than the film we see. Exactly. Like, you know, the, Definitely uh, just as insane. Yeah. And again, like the disaster artist, that sense of like, wow, the stories behind the scenes of that film are so crazy. They are as nuts as the movie you watch. Um, but yeah. All right. Double feature. Cody. Okay. So I f- first was racking my brain, couldn't come up with anything. And I was like, well, so the, the obvious pick seems to me to be The Room. It's made okay. itself financed by a guy you know he produced wrote and directed starred in it has all the same touchstones uh it doesn't it you know has a little bit more of a linear storyline and not the time jumps and all but as we were talking i also thought i had another movie jump into mine and that is funny games the haneke movie the tim roth and the two preppy kids come in the remake yeah yeah yeah. Why? Mainly just because of the, I don't even know what to call it. It's not like a fourth wall break. It's just when, when, when the kid's friend gets shot and then he turns the whole thing into a movie watching experience and rewinds the movie. That like the metatextual in. stuff to yeah, where it's so like a, becomes a movie commenting on how we watch movies kind yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. So that was, I mean, that's, so th- those two partnering together combined would be my <laughs> what about the astrologer though i'm i'm curious now on what made you think of funny the mo- games the movie in a movie yeah okay i never saw the tim tim roth version oh man i think it's, it's actually better than the original really i only i only saw the other one um but i love i love Hanneke. um 
Really? Oh, he's one of my favorite. Like, I'm Ta- like split down the middle. Time of the him. Wolf is just like one of the greatest films ever made. Um, You're one of the greatest films ever made. Thank you. Martin, double feature? Um, yeah, so I already told you earlier, but uh, Manos, Hands of Fate. Okay. Um, that was a film that kept popping in my head watching it. And for me, it's a tonal thing. They have a very, very similar tone. Um, and the way they're shot, the framing, honestly, too, there is an amateurish frame we're talking about. Yeah. But it gives the, the films a very similar vibe. Um, they also also have a very kind of creepy feeling to both of them, like supernatural, but you're not really quite sure what it is. And there's a creepiness sometimes that comes from films that don't seem quite like they know what they're doing. Like, I don't know, like, like sometimes like Herschel Gordon Lewis, like some of his early stuff. Or I find, Al uh, Adamson, kind of. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, that kind of thing where you're like, this is weird. Um, even moments, and I, I think he's a better filmmaker, but Charles B. Pierce, like doing like the evictors or, yeah. you know, um, where it's like, this is, there's, a, there's a real life weirdness kind of imbued in the film. Um, I also, I mean, for me, Man of Stands of Fate, the main reason too is that the filmmaking behind it too is a guy who wrote, directed, starred, um, and produced the film, um, Harold P. Warren. And yeah, the, what a name. Really quick, the, the best story about this is that he's a Texan guy. He's from El Paso. I mean, he passed away years ago, but. He was a, a, a theater actor as well. He's a fertilizer salesman in El Paso. And they were, uh, Sterling Sullivan and his show Route 66 came through. And he had a bit part um, in the show. And he was sitting at lunch with Sterling Sullivan. And he said, um, you know, Sterling Sullivan, who had also written, uh, or about to write um, In the Heat of the Night. And they're sitting there and uh, Warren says, oh, it's really easy to make a horror film. And Sullivan's like, you're full of shit. You know how to make a movie. And so they, they made a bet that he couldn't make a film by himself. He's like, all right, I'll do it. And he wrote the entire script there, all the plot points on a napkin with Sterling Sullivan at lunch, and then went and made the movie for $19,000. Um, but it's a very similar thing where you watch the film, the guy's the main character. I mean, The Astrologer is 10 times, 100 times better movie than Man of Hands of Fate. Well, and that's but, the thing I do want to bring up with both of your picks is that what's interesting and I, to me, sets the astrologer kind of apart, is that, like, with The Room, what makes that movie so, well, frankly, laughable, like, yeah. as we, and has become, like, a midnight movie favorite because people essentially laugh at it as right. opposed to with it, is that Tommy didn't know when to let go, let's say, especially in the technical aspects. Like, he... There's a reason that movie looks the way it looks, sounds the way it sounds. Like, it is totally his, but, like, to a detriment. And the same with Manos Hands of Fate is that these weren't really professional productions. Like, they were just these guys kind of riffing and, like, totally taking control and, like, bringing the money in and making these movies all on their own. But, like, all that input was theirs. You know, that wasn't a quote-unquote collaborative process where, like, with Denny... He was working with a professional crew. He was working maybe not with real actors, but with people who knew how to put a movie together. So when you watch it, there's a legit language to it that's interesting and feels polished to yeah. a certain extent. Obviously, there's parts of it that are totally amateurs and bizarre too, just totally like The Room or Manos. But 
the beauty of the astrology comes from some of the fact that you're working with pros. That's interesting, yeah. Because you know, to me, Man of Sands of Fate is, was a complete indie film with you know, a businessman saying, I'm going to make a film. I made a bet. Um, yeah, 100%. But, it, you know, but again, I watched, there were just scenes and the, and the framing and the style and the and the creepy vibe that comes from some amateurishness. Really, yeah. that first, Manos was the first thing that popped in my head when I was watching it, so. Yeah, I mean, it tracks, and so does The Room. Like, totally get both. Yeah. What you got? Uh, Massacre Mafia Style from 1974. Um, to me... All right, so the astrologer is the the best vanity DIY project ever made by a guy who just a total fucking ego like egomaniac who like had to make a movie to tell his own story because that was the only story he gave a shit about. You know, it's like watching a, a narcissist bleed out on the sidewalk the entire time. With massacre mafia style, that's the next closest thing because have either of you seen it no all right so it's by a guy named duke mitchell duke mitchell was for lack of a better term a lounge lizard a crooner like brillo pad hair thick tan like looks like a extra from the sopranos um but he you know grew up in brooklyn went into music uh, went out west and actually became an actor first, uh, like and worked with like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, like appearing in one of their movies, and then got set up as basically a uh, Martin and Lewis knockoff group with him and a guy named I believe his name was Sammy Petrullo or Petrucci. Uh, anyway, but they made one movie together called uh, Bella, Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. I've, I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. It's like one of the, the, the all time like Z grade schlock movies, but they're the stars of it. Like they're the Abbott and Costello or Martin and Lewis kind of uh, team. And like to the point that like their partnership ended because Jerry Lewis threatened legal like action against them because it was such a blatant knockoff. So then Duke Mitchell goes and becomes a crooner, like a lounge lizard playing everywhere from like Chicago to New York and then became almost like a permanent resident at Palm Springs. Like, and was actually in the Palm Springs Hall of Fame, which I didn't know existed until I read this essay about him, but there's a Palm Springs Hall of Fame in case you ever want to like visit it i don't know who else would be in that but anyway um but then the godfather comes out in 72 right and he hates it he finds it to be a total affront to his italian american heritage because again this was a guy who like considered himself friends with sinatra he lived with james dean at some point and actually kicked like again apocryphal bit of history but apparently kicked james dean out of his apartment like when they lived together in like the early or late 50s i want to say early 60s but then he uh he decided like because after he saw the godfather he found it disrespectful 
to Italian American heritage because it glorified gangsterism and like being criminal and everything. And he felt that that was an affront to where he came from because like he knew all these criminals, he knew all these gangsters, he knew all these guys in like Lake Tahoe and Palm Springs and everything who like ran these kind of crime syndicates and they were all scuzzballs. So he made Massacre Mafia style as a response to The Godfather. He made it totally on his own. And it's a low budget, total exploitation, like violence fest to where he and the guy uh, who is, uh, whose name I'm actually blanking on, but he was the drummer in one of his like singing bands. They're two like petty thugs who rise up and like basically take on the entire West coast mafia and like lay waste to them so that they can control everything. But the entire movie is essentially a treatise on like how these guys are just total scumbag assholes who like kill everything in their path. They have sex with everyone. They produce porno movies at a certain point. They go to war. Okay. So this movie's not PC in the least, but, they go to war with all the black pimp of L.A. named Super Spook. Yeah. Ooh. No, like, like this is not a movie for if you're easily offended, not the 88 minutes for you. But, like, they go to work with the, they go to war with, like, the black pimps to, like, take over. They want to take over their business, by the way, so that they can put their girls in porno movies. So these aren't, like, altruistic individuals. They just want to make money off of sex, too. But the movie will stop dead in its tracks again and again for Duke Mitchell to a because he writes, directs, produces, stars in his own movie. And it stops dead on several occasions for him to monologue about how the great Italian-American heritage has been disrespected time and again. There's this amazing scene where he's having dinner with the other uh, mob guys. And there's an older woman there who's like, Again, he's not the best storyteller, so you don't know how they're related, but it's almost like if you imagine like all of those Scorsese movies where like Scorsese's mom yeah. just like shows up there the, randomly. The old cook who's like helping and, and that's serving. who she kind of is, and he like literally takes her hand, he's like, This woman, this woman here, we disrespect her hands whenever we take a life. We disrespect her and how she came to this country and she broke her back, and that every time we're thrown in jail. She is disrespected, and we're disrespecting the thousands and millions of Italian mothers out there who came from the Sicily. And you're watching it, and you're like, what the fuck is going on in this movie right now? But the reason I would pair it with uh, astrologers because of that is because this is clearly a guy who saw himself as being this great messenger of his own culture or of his own story. And he decided that because of either lack of funding, because there are stories too, that after he acted, he basically got laughed out of acting. It wasn't all, all just Jerry Lewis, like threatening legal action over it is that they were like, well, this guy is never going to be a star. Like there's again, an apocryphal story where he goes to like Sinatra and it's like, Oh, when you gonna put me in one of my movies? And Sinatra was like, "When you look like me, I guess." <laughs> like, <laughs> but like he 
didn't have the means or the talent or anything, and he just decided to make his own movie that tells his own story that both acts as a confessional about all the things that he clearly hates about himself and his people while simultaneously glorifying it to the nth degree, the same way the astrologer does. Because like it's clear that Craig Denny and the astrologer loves himself. And he loves this idea of like him becoming famous. In the same way that Duke Mitchell like clearly like made Massacre Mafia style, which when it was released on VHS was also called the the Executioner. Um but he like wanted to make a the most because it was advertised in the paper when it played and everything as the most violent movie ever made. And it was it's a pure exploitation film to where he wanted to make something where he was just this fucking hardened badass who fucked every hot woman he saw and killed every black pimp that he saw and like was just a force of nature and you're like oh this is weird like and it but it's awesome it's one of the purest moments of like especially 70s exploitation uh expression of one's like worldview that you could ever get it's undiluted and he only ever made well quote unquote made one other movie called gone with the pope which he died during the production of then they shot a bunch of footage and and then years and years like later in like 2010 Bob Murawski actually uh discovered the footage from it in uh Duke's son's garage and using like bar napkins and old notes and everything he pieced together gone with the pope and released it to where it's now on you know grindhouse releasing put it out on like a blu-ray it's amazing but it's another like total confessional film to where like it's about this guy and it's about two guys who break into the underworld with a plan to kidnap the Pope. And it's about how they stick it to God in the name of every Catholic who was damned because they didn't adhere to the, the, the rules that the religion, like religion sets out. It's bonkers. They like, should remake that today with Nicolas Cage playing both parts. No, you these are movies you can't remake cuz they're right. such like The Astrologer, yeah. they're such products of like one individual and you're like, "Oh, this guy's deranged. I love it." <laughs> but that's my pick, cool. 1974's Massacre Mafia style and or Gone with the Pope. So, right. final question. Face melter status. Guys, who wants to go first? I'll go first. Uh, I'm not going to certify it a face melter because I'm going to certify it a brain exploder. <laughs> it's a whole new. It's a whole new. It's term. a whole new level. Yeah. So you you love it. It it totally gets the stamp. Yeah, it, it's it's completely original and an individual, and it you can't duplicate it. You can't imitate it. It's. And you watch it with any audience and they lose their mind. Yeah, I loved watching it with Martin. I, I loved knowing what to you know, be waiting for and just watching him for his expressions. It's great. It's true. H- hands down a face melter. Yeah. Know? Or like you said, more than that. I, Again, you know, I think our earlier films that have been face melters have often been action-based. It's a sense of action, action, action. Right. Sure. Right? And that's that kind of like, oh, what's going to happen? This is not an action-packed movie, but as a film... Constantly surprising, so fucking weird, entertaining all the time. 
Like, even yeah. when I don't know what's going on, it is it is consistently delightful. Um, so yes, I would say face melter. I obviously agree. There's no questioning whether or not this is a face melter. This might actually be the ultimate face melter for me because it's just, I've seen what it's done to multiple audiences now, both in like the privacy of like a living room and a big auditorium. And it just shreds every time you can't duplicate it. It's singular. The astrologer is one of the greatest movies ever made. Stamp it. We're closing out the season with unanimous face filter. Yeah. And guys, you know what? That's the end of season one. Yes. Feels pretty good. I got half a chub. If I could, I would. <laughs> what? He did... needs the right mattress and the one glove. Oh, did they? Wait, did the old housewives finally break it? Yeah. You have a fractured wee-wee. <laughs> it's not good. Well, no, on I, that note. Yeah, feeling good. This is great. I can't wait to head into season two. We're going to do a season two, right? Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. So I can't wait for that, uh, both so Martin's penis can heal. and Got to give it time. These things take time. (laughs) Yeah, don't masturbate as much. Thank you. You got to leave that guy be. You got to keep the ropes in. Yeah. That's what gives it strength. (laughs) Tensile strength. But guys, it's been a pleasure. Indeed. Until next season, this is Secret Handshake. I love you. Just beginning to see